This is a big deal, what we see in this text today. This meeting that happens, you know, the apostolic argument, that was another one. I thought, well, that that one kind of gets to the point. But all of those would miss the result. So I didn't want to focus so much on the negative or the difficult, but really the outcome, really the attitude and the heart behind the Apostle Paul as he approached the Apostle Peter. And Peter was a giant. He was a giant in the faith. He was the first preacher on the day of Pentecost. Whenever you see Jesus calling his disciples, it's always Peter, James, John. Peter is always the lead hitter. And in the text we get to today, Peter messed up. And this is, the reality is that there are giants in the faith that fall down. I don't know if you can think of those that maybe, you know, I could think of people in my own family that once invested into my life, ministry, truth, the gospel, and they fell down and they fell out of ministry. There was an impact to that. That's a, that's a real hurt. There's a real danger of those who serve in ministry. As Paul said, to I've preached to others And he said, and I don't ever want to be disqualified myself. I need your prayers in that. Jamie needs your prayers in that. Russ, as an elder, needs your prayers for us. You think of those, and I have books on my shelves of individuals who were once influential in Christianity, and then something happened, and they, they took a left turn, and their book may have truth in it, but their name is on it. And with their name on it, It casts a doubt over everything that they wrote. People who once advocated, I'm thinking of one man who advocated for, here's the right way in dating, and here's the way you should do, and recently has come out as a full-blown endorsement of the homosexual lifestyle. What we see unfold in today's text is what our point was last Sunday The second point of the sermon last Sunday in this same chapter, verses 3 to 5, confront gospel threats. And what Peter the Apostle is doing as we come to this text, Paul says, you are a threat to the gospel, and he withstood him to his face. What are the issues? You can really see it in two ways, salvation and racism. Those are two topics the third being politics, all right? But that is also kind of a, a part of this as well. But those two topics, when dropped into your Thanksgiving dinner, salvation and racism. Build the wall, don't build the wall. What are they doing here? Who are those people? They're taking mine. And oh, how heated we can get over certain situations Forgetting, beloved, that we are all made in the image of God. Oh, we have to watch our tone. Do governments have responsibilities? Yes. As Christians, we have a higher authority. We have a higher citizenship. And that ought to reign over every aspect of our lives, beloved. When Jesus came and Mark records in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he came preaching the good news, the gospel. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. 
Okay, so remember what I said last week. Mark received his, the gospel of Mark. Peter was his source. Okay, it connects together. Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, this is Jesus' message, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, the good news. The euangelion is the Greek word, and William Tyndale in 1525 gave this definition of the gospel. He would seal this definition with his death, a martyr, a few years later. He said, what is the gospel? It's a Greek word signifying good, merry, glad, and joyful news. It makes a man's heart glad, makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy. I'm just wondering, when we sing, does the work of the gospel influence how you worship the Lord? Just think, if somebody leaped or danced for joy up in here on a Sunday, how many looks? What are they doing? This is church. How dare they? Uh, Maybe they actually believe the gospel. Maybe they remember they had an eternal death sentence to hell and God in his mercy came down and said, I'll take their punishment. I'll die in their place. And they simply can't get done saying, hallelujah, worthy is the lamb who was slain for me, the sinner. And for any other sinner that will trust in him. So y'all do what you want to do. I'm going to maybe every now and then leap and dance and lift a hand and shout for joy. And if somebody clapping, stop looking at me. What are you clapping for? We're in church. Clap your hands for joy, right? This is the gospel. And, and watch football. When your team scores and that stadium is filled with people, they don't have to put a thing on the big jumbotron. Please clap now. Please jump for joy now. Please yell and scream. I mean, every now and then on defense, you know, they got to get that going, right? But when somebody scores, unless you're asleep, if you're all decked in red and your team is wearing red, wow, good news, bad news. The other team still has more points than you. Oh, come on, right? So let's understand the gospel, not so much as just like, I've got to have the gospel and the... This is good news. Captives set free. This is the the language of Corey Ten Boom and others who were in a Nazi prison camp. And for her, her paperwork got messed up and they came giving her the good news, you've been released. And she was released right before the war near came to an end and other people died and it was a mistake, a clerical mistake. And without that clerical mistake, she would not have lived to tell the story. When her cell door opened or whatever the place was where she was kept and she was put outside of that prison, you can read it in the book, The Hiding Place. You can see it in the movie. She was set free. That's good news. That's euangelion, announcing freedom. Set free. You've been set free. A few weeks ago, I used this graphic of the light bulb, the gospel. It really highlights two angles. One, it tells us how bad we are. We're sinners. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But the gospel also also tells us how much we're loved. Yes, we're sinners. But God, in his mercy, 
gave up himself in flesh to die for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, trusts in the gospel, will receive life that never ends, right? Will not perish, but have everlasting life. And it all rides on how have you responded to the gospel? Do you understand the gospel? Have you believed the gospel? When Paul went into these Roman provinces of Galatia, he was preaching the good news. You can be set free. The Lord set me free. You can be set free. And people responded and churches were planted in Galatia. Then came the Judaizers. Well, that's a nice message, but Paul doesn't have all authority. Paul doesn't have the whole message. Uh, You have to convert. And when it talks about the circumcision, it's really one word summing it all up. You need to keep all the feasts. You need to keep all the holidays. You need to do all the things. Here's your diet. Here's the physical things. Here's all these things. There you go. Hang on to that and maybe you'll make it. That's a gospel threat. They were adding works to faith. So the question was then and still is for us today, beloved, how are we saved? How can you be made clean? How can you be a sinner justified in the sight of a holy and righteous God? Because we're not measured by people around us. How do you compare? How do I compare to the person you're sitting next to or behind or in front of? How do you compare? How do I compare to Jesus? We just entered a whole new league, right? And we would all say, if we're honest, I don't. I don't measure up. I am a sinner. I am guilty. So Paul here exemplifies how when Jude writes, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, this is what we see Paul doing. So beloved, we must have the real authentic gospel. The gospel that just doesn't, just, you know, don't tell people that. Don't tell people that. Just tell them how much they're loved. That's what we'll do. We'll just focus on your best life now and how great God is and how great you are. And most people are really good. They just make some bad mistakes once in a while. Some people, no, no. You got to have both sides of the gospel. You have to have the real gospel. This uh, pamphlet is here. It's a little tract. What is the gospel? Some of you have this. Some of you have given this to others. This is a pamphlet. There's a book that goes with this. Just like I said, Galatians is a pamphlet. Romans is the book right? Galatians is six chapters. Romans is a monumental book. And in this book, Greg Gilbert writes this. An emaciated gospel leads to emaciated worship. It lowers our eyes from God to self and cheapens what God has accomplished for us in Christ. The biblical gospel, by contrast, is like fuel in the furnace of worship. The more you understand about it, the real gospel, the more you believe it, the more you rely on it, the more you adore God, both for who he is and for what he has done for us in Christ. So beloved, we will never graduate beyond the gospel. The gospel is not just for lost sinners. The gospel is for the redeemed. Remember what I I think it was last week I said it. The gospel is like water. We didn't invent it and we can't live without it. It isn't simply for new life. It is for all of our life in Christ. 
Churches must not just have the gospel, but we must develop and sustain a gospel culture. This is what it means, and this is the title of the series, Stand Firm in Grace. And what I have in mind is a gospel culture that should be in our church and every church. When a church is healthy, when it maintains a thriving gospel culture, then our five distinctives emanate. It just comes out of that, that we will have Christ-centered preaching and people will come. And, and Sunday, the Lord's Day, will be a priority in people's lives because we're coming to hear about Jesus and we will worship passionately because we understand the gospel. What he's done for me, and we will pray fervently, and we'll say, Lord, we need your help, and we're depending on you, and we can't do anything without you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This will lead to courageous evangelism that is simply telling what God has done for us and telling the good news and making disciples as we gather in small groups and we walk together in this life, and we pray for one another, and we take even this message, and we break it down through different personalities of husbands and wives, and Stephen with our college and career, and we flesh this out. How do we obey this? Do we rightly understand this? How can we pray for one another that we might have these two, if you will, wings, a right belief and a right behavior? We have to have it. We can't live without it. Francis Schaeffer, he said this. He said, one cannot explain the explosive power of the early church apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously. Orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community. Okay, right belief, right behavior. You can't have one without the other. Just like an airplane can't fly with just, well, we got a good, really good left wing. I mean, it's an amazing left wing. Right wing hasn't come in yet, but the left wing made, wow, it's just amazing. I'm not getting on that plane. I'll take a little inferior both wings rather than a really good one wing. You need them both, okay? So keep this in mind. In this orthodoxy of doctrine, an orthodoxy of community in the midst of the visible church, a community which the world could see, by the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Our churches have so often been only preaching points with very little emphasis on community, but exhibition of the love of God in practice is beautiful and must be there. You see, you have to have both the right doctrine and a right lifestyle in community. Ray Ortland. He illustrates in, in the Nine Marks book, The Gospel, he says it this way. He gives formulas, all right? Some of you are mathematical. You like to see things in formula. All right, the, the first formula he gives, gospel doctrine, but you just take away from gospel doctrine, gospel culture, okay? So we have the right belief, but our behavior doesn't add up. Okay, this is the church in Ephesus. They were fighting for the truth. They were fighting against false teachers. They were fighting, fighting, fighting. And Jesus said, I have somewhat against you. You have lost your first love. You have doctrine, but you lost the culture. And if you don't amend your ways, Jesus says, I'm going to come snuff out your lamp. Okay? So when you have a gospel doctrine, we believe all the right things, but we're just nasty. That's hypocrisy. And I think everybody in the church membership would say, oh, we don't want to be that. No way. Okay? The second is a gospel culture, but just take away from that culture 
right teaching, the gospel, doctrine. And there are a lot of churches that are popping up here, there, and everywhere, and they have all of the culture. They do all the things, and we're projects over here, and we help over there, and we feed this, and we do there, and we put wells over here, and look at all that we're doing. But then the doctrine, they're missing it. They won't be honest about what the Bible says about marriage. They won't be honest about what the Bible says about sin. They'll shy away from it because, well, that's kind of negative. So let's just focus on the gospel culture and we're just leave, let go of the gospel doctrine and that is fragility. So where would God have us to be? You have to have both, the doctrine and the culture all immersed in the gospel this is where the power of God is. This is what we read in Acts. This is what we read in the early church. This is how the church turned the world upside down and they were a bunch of nobodies. It's because they had the right belief and they had the right behavior. You have to have both, beloved. We need both in our lives. So Paul confronted Peter. In our text, he confronted Peter. He's calling him to turn back. Follow along there, if you will, in your Bibles, Galatians 2. Verse 11, but when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, Paul said, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, that's Jerusalem, okay, that's the mother church. He was eating with the Gentiles, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas, that's the encourager, he was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, he's talking about Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves, so here Paul is talking about himself, Barnabas, Peter, the people who came from Jerusalem. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. That's a derogatory term. They understood that term. So Paul uses it to add a little sting to what he's saying and how they're treating the Gentiles. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the word of the Lord. So beloved, if we're going to follow in this example, Paul gives us a pattern and it's not simply, I'm not simply interested in giving you information today. This is not about you learning something for nothing. This is about us learning for obedience. It's learning for our lives. It's learning for the sake of the gospel, the health of the church. And it takes every single member of the church. I said it last week. The chain is only as strong as its weakest link. So you have to ask yourself, has God placed me in this body? Did I just wander in here on my own? Is he sovereign in my life or is it just me doing my own thing and I have a little God on the side? Does that sound like the God who created all things, heaven and earth? 
Do you worship him? Has he placed you in the local body of believers? Then how do we contend for the faith and strive for unity? One, observe the offender. We have to observe the offender, and guess who it is? It's the good old apostle Peter. It's the man. It's the first preacher on the day of Pentecost. And he fell and failed miserably. So Peter was opposed by Paul. Paul writes, I opposed him to his face. Let's think about this. How did Paul handle this, this issue, this argument? He didn't go around behind Peter's back. He didn't stir up discord. It had nothing to do with personality conflicts, had nothing to do with Paul is different than Peter, their ministry is different, and Paul thought he was better than Peter, and Peter thought he was better, had nothing to do with that. Paul just got done demonstrating in the previous chapter that when I was in Jerusalem, they extended the right hand of fellowship. And if you were here last Sunday, you remember, here we go, let's take the first century snapshot in a letter. Here's the right hand of fellowship, and we're included. Get over here, Titus, right here in the middle, Barnabas, Paul, Peter, James, John. There they all are, which immediately excludes the Judaizers. And here we see that Peter was opposed to by Paul. Now they're in Antioch. They're in a Gentile area. They're not standing together. They're standing face to face. Paul did not overlook Peter's offense. He did not move on and say, well, you know, I'm sure he meant well. I'm sure it's going to be okay. You know, he's an apostle. I'm an apostle. So let's just, you know, just let bygones be bygones. That's really tempting but it's cowardly. And we see in Galatians 1.10, Paul's all, all done playing politics. He's all done trying to win the approval of people. The gospel is in the balance, and he's going toe-to-toe -to -toe with his brother, the apostle Peter. Maybe some of you are tempted at times to just go quiet. Well, I'm sure they meant well. I mean, it doesn't sound right. It doesn't, it's just not right. I know it's not right, but it's not my place you have to square that with Scripture. And beloved, it doesn't. It's every single member striving for unity. He wasn't intimidated. He wasn't afraid of Peter. They were both individuals called by Christ, commissioned by Christ. We saw it last week. They're equals. Paul didn't say, well, Peter... You know, church tradition in a couple centuries is going to have you holding the key, so I'll just bow down to you. No, no. No. He confronted Peter publicly. This isn't a closed-door meeting. Paul is not simply concerned with adjusting Peter's behaviors. He addresses the situation in such a way that he gets to the heart of the problem. In 1 Timothy 5, uh, Paul would later write, verses 19 and 20, don't receive an accusation against an elder unless there's two or three witnesses. This is a public sin that Peter has done. There's no question in this. But when an elder is in sin, then they're to be confronted publicly. Some of our issues as a church is there have been people in positions to borrow from Galatians who seemed to be influential in the church, but they weren't elders. And so how do you deal with that person when they operate in an unbiblical way, but they're not really an elder? And so they just kind of quietly go here, go there, do their thing, and what hurts because of it? The church. The testimony of Christ. The fellowship of the brethren. 
It doesn't adorn the gospel. So it's serious. And we're going to see it unfold in this text. And what you have to do is you have to say, uh, is pastor addressing certain situations? Is he upset? Let me ask you the question. Was Paul addressing a certain situation? Yeah. Was he upset? You bet you he was. Because he knew people that were hurt by Peter's and others, Barnabas and others, mistreatment of the gospel and mistreatment of brothers and sisters in Christ. And for them, their love demanded a response that was quite heated. It's my role as shepherding to equip you. What did Jesus say? Matthew 18, Peter knew it. You cause one of these little ones to stumble, you should put a millstone around your neck and take a long walk off a short pier. Peter heard that message and Peter should be strapping on a stone. And Paul's ready to help him with it if he doesn't repent. I don't think it can be said any clearer. That's, this, that's why I want to call it the rumble. Let's get ready to rumble. This is a brawl. But they didn't really brawl. They didn't really fight. It was words. It was just an argument, okay? And now listen to what Tim Keller writes. Now, for me, reading what Tim Keller wrote here and what he's been writing and some of these questions that we're going through, you know those, those weapons that have the laser and you can see exactly where that bullet's going? When I read what I'm reading here, it's like I look down and there's a, red, there's a red laser dot on my chest. If I was to look in the mirror, I couldn't see it without looking in the mirror. It's like on my forehead, confronting how I was raised, how I was brought up, how we thought, how we viewed superiority, and we're separated from everybody else, and you know, we don't do this, that. You can fill it all in. Listen to what he writes. He says, Paul's approach makes all the difference. Paul did not simply say, you're breaking the rules, even though Peter was. But here's what he did say. You have forgotten the gospel, your own gracious welcome in Christ. Paul did not focus so much on the sinful behavior as on the sinful attitude of self-righteousness that lay beneath it. This is the Christian way of opposing someone. When you are trying to motivate people by urging them to see their riches and love in Christ, then you are personally pointing to their value and dignity as you appeal. That's foreign to my subconscious way of thinking. This comes natural to me. This I have to fight. But when you try to motivate people by threatening them, you will probably feel little respect for them as you do so. And they will rightly sense that you're not on their side. When we use God's grace as a motivator, we can criticize sharply and directly, but the other person will generally be able to perceive that we are nonetheless for them. No wonder Paul was winsome in this situation. And if I can just be honest with you, that's what I long for. And before God, I can tell you, I've longed for and I have been on the side of every member that has come through here and every non-believer that has never come to faith in Christ. But has that always been perfectly demonstrated? Absolutely not. But then I look into this text and I say, so you're telling me that Peter, the apostle, 
blew it and God wasn't done with him and God used him. So there's hope for this guy. And I need you to pray and give grace to this guy and to my family. And we need those that when they come to me and say, pastor, I just can't worship in there. I can't worship in there because, you know, the color of the building. And, and I can't worship in there because uh, I saw a young person holding the hand of a girlfriend. I can't worship God and have that. And on down the list you can go of what your pastors deal with, of all the endless things that people have that put it all the way up to gospel level, willing to leave a church over whatever. And as I said last week, it's not just our church. Our brothers and sisters around the world are dealing with this. How are we going to strive for unity? How are we going to contend for the gospel? And I will say this. I said it in the first service, and I will say it again. This church's failures are my failures. This church's weaknesses are my weaknesses. Our struggles are my struggles. We're not separated in this. But when we understand grace that motivates us instead of fear and guilt and shame, it's a whole new world. And I'm thankful for, this, this is why I have sought out those who will speak in a, in a tone of grace into my life. And Paul David Tripp and Tim Keller and Alistair Begg and so many others. And I, I drink in what they're saying and I weigh it out by scripture because I need something other than my own voice saying, you're great, you're awesome, you're the best. Or the other side of the ditch that I deal with more often is that was horrible, that stinks. There's a whole lot better people out there, all of which are true. But I have to come back to but who am I in Christ? We just sang it. I am blessed. I am called. In the name of Jesus Christ, I'm saved. I'm highly favored, anointed, and filled with his spirit, with his power. Why? For the glory of not my own name, and not the name of Grace Community Church, the name of Jesus Christ. This is life-giving to me. This is life-giving to our church. I'm grieved that not our whole body is gathered on the Lord's Day to be under this message. And I understand there's reasons why people can't be here today. But this is life-giving. This is a Christian's lifeblood. We can't live without this. We can be just like a lot of other people who say they're Christians and a lot of other churches, but without the gospel and without grace, without the culture, without the right belief and the right behavior, then we're just going through a lot of motions. I'm not interested in wasting my life going through the motions, shadow boxing. Peter was guilty. He was guilty of causing division in the church. He influenced others. So Paul said, you know what, Peter? You're condemned. That's the opposite of being justified. Peter was condemned. Now let me ask you this question. When I'm studying this, and I've known this passage for a long time, but I've known this is here, I can see Peter's mistakes all day long. Man, what a mess. He should have known better. Peter, I can see his faults a mile away. And you know whose faults I struggle seeing? Somebody take a wild guess. Thanks, Stephen. You're right. My own. 
right? What about you? Are you that different from me? Maybe. Can we identify those who are putting the gospel of grace at risk in the church? I gotta be able to see it here first. I have to preach the gospel to my own heart first. Because whenever I start in on somebody else and they and this and that and the other thing, I'm on the wrong track. I'm headed in the wrong direction. Can we see that we are the offenders? I am the offender? Can I identify threats to the gospel? Secondly, understand the offense. Oh, this is serious. Peter was right in what he believed. He was right. He had the right doctrine. He went to the right classes. He had Jesus. He had all the training he needed. Acts 10.34, Peter believed in racial equality. Jesus is for everybody. That's what he said. Acts 4.12, he preached, oh, salvation in Jesus in his name alone. I preached that message. That was a great message. God used that. People came to Christ. Peter believed that man's problem is internal, not external. Peter would have gotten an amazing score on the doctrine test. Go with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. This is one of the first texts I preach as a youth pastor in Illinois. Kind of stuck out to me because Jesus talks about you eat food and then you eliminate food, and I was a youth pastor, and that's kind of interesting. So I preach this message because there's Pharisees. The Pharisees are saying your disciples didn't wash their hands. When you work with teenagers, <laughs> they don't wash their hands. A lot of people don't wash their hands. Grosses me out. Wash your hands. Right? Use the bathroom, wash your hands. I, I, I want to invent something that I can zap people when they don't wash their hands going out of the bathroom. Like some alarm or something. Like, didn't wash their hands. That's not what they're talking about. They're saying they didn't go through a ceremonial washing. You know, all the pomp and circumstance. And Jesus just, he cuts straight to the chase and preaches them a message in Mark 7 and verse 8. And he says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? How to be winsome and really win an audience. He says, that is, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's what we're talking about. And Peter was there for this sermon. He heard this sermon given. Mark is recording it through Peter's eyewitness account. Jesus said in verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. You set aside scripture because your thing is more important. I know the Bible says, be kind, forgive one another, tenderhearted, even as God in Christ has forgiven me, but I just can't forgive them. I just won't put up with that anymore. And here I go, for whatever reason. Well, what's the outcome of that? Verse 13, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. He called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. He explains in verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, 
murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. What is he saying? I remember there was one guy who used to say, how are you doing? He said, I'm doing fine. It's the world that's wrong. Jesus is saying, the world is wrong because you're what's wrong. I'm what's wrong. The problem is inside of me. And religion can't get deep enough to deal with that problem. God, through the gospel, can deal with that problem and displace the problem, take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Now go with me to the book of Acts. As Luke would record, this is where Peter had, he had a front row seat, okay? He grew up faithful Jew, observing all the feasts and holidays. And I mean, he just kept the law and he was lost. And then he met Jesus and he followed Jesus and Jesus ascended and he preaches the gospel. And we get to Acts chapter 10 and the church still isn't moving out. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and Jesus said, go to the uttermost parts of the earth. They're still not moving yet. Here's a man we meet. His name is Cornelius. In Acts 10, he's praying. He loves God. He devout man. He feared God with all his household. Verse 2 says, gave alms generously to the people, prayed continually to God. God sends an angel and said, hey, Cornelius, dispatch and send for Simon. He's at Simon the Tanner's house. Send for Peter. Okay. The next day, verse 9, they're on their journey, approaching this dispatch from the city. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour. That's about noon. That's when you start getting hungry. Hmm, about 12.05 right now. Some of you are starting to get hungry. Peter's hungry, and he gets a vision. Pigs in a blanket coming down three times, a reoccurring theme for old Peter. Three times he denied the Lord, and you'll see throughout the New Testament multiple times. It makes me wonder a little bit if Paul didn't need to say things three times for him. You are to be condemned, Peter. You are to be condemned. You are to be condemned. Why are you telling me that three times? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, three times. And listen to what the Lord says. Rise, Peter, in verse 13, kill and eat. Inside that blanket is all kinds of stuff that we eat. Red lobster, bad, bread, bad Brad's barbecue, all of it. And he's like, ah, I've never eaten that stuff. I don't touch that stuff because I'm clean. Did you forget Mark 7, Peter? Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened, there it is, three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And Peter's sitting there like, what is this about? I've never done this. And... Hey, is there a Simon Peter here? Oh, yeah, he's up on the roof. He says, stay here. They leave out the next day. They go to Cornelius' house. Cornelius is expecting, look at verse 25. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at Peter's feet and worshiped him. And Peter said, that's right, because I have the keys. So, oh, my bad, that's not in there. But Peter lifted him up, verse 26, saying, stand up. I too am a man. Don't worship me. Don't elevate me. 
You worship God. Get up. And what does he do? Listen, now, now this is the backdrop, okay, to why Peter's offense is so offensive. Because Peter knows this. Listen to Peter himself. This is what he said. Here he is in a Gentile's house. It's gathered. It's packed. The house is full. Guest speaker, Peter. And he said to them, verse 28, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. He's not talking about breaking Roman law. He's saying, I just broke with custom. I broke the tradition of the Jewish people. I am outside of anything we have done since the Mosaic law. This is unbelievable, unthinkable. But God, why would you do that? God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And you know what Peter does? He shares the gospel with them. He says, you know what's happened. You know about John the Baptist? You know about Jesus? And he preached the gospel of peace and he was put to death by my people. He was hung on the cross and he rose again and he is the Lord. He is the judge of all the earth. He preaches the gospel. There's no partiality. Verse 35, but in any, every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Look at verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still laying, saying these things, the Holy Spirit fall on all these Gentiles who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised. You got the two different groups here. You got the visitors and you got the foreign Gentiles. You're in their land. All the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles for they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? He's talking to his buddies from, Jeru from Jerusalem. Can anybody object to them being baptized? Who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And it would have been just like in this room right now, crickets. No, because who did this? God did this. He did it for us. He's doing it for them. Some people will take this and say, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit yet? Right here it says you have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You have to understand this is going into the Gentile world. You have to get the context of this. That the Jewish people, they were there. They saw what God did for them. They're looking now at Gentiles. Unthinkable that this would ever happen. And we just saw it happen. God is for the Gentiles. He's for the Jews. Through the Jewish people comes the blessing to all peoples. And we just saw him pour out his blessing in a way just like he did for us. He did for them then. And then Jesus or Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. And chapter 11, please come out of the house. Peter, why are you in the house? The people come from Jerusalem, and now Peter's stuck. Suddenly, the pulled pork sandwich and the ribs, and the man, that lobster, I'm liking the lobster, and the king crab legs. I don't even know if they had any of that. But he's eating shellfish. He's eating all this stuff, and then in comes the police from Jerusalem. What's he going to do? Does he believe what he said? I mean, he had the right belief. I got the right doctrine. I passed my test. I believed. Right doctrine. I preached the messages. But you're, now we see he had the wrong behavior. 
he withdraws. He separates himself from these new believers in a Gentile land. He, he was the preacher to them that we're, we're accepted in God's sight. He, we're, there's only one way to be saved and it's Jesus. And whether you're Jew or whether you're a Gentile or whether you're male or whether you're female, whether you're old or whether you're young, there's only one way to be saved and it's Jesus. There's not religion. You can't be saved by works. And then here come the pressure, that conflict. What are people gonna think about me? What are they gonna say about me? And here's his big offense. He drew back and separated himself, put a boundary around him. Included in him eating the meal is also the Lord's table. So now he's putting a barrier between him and the Gentile believers that we're not going to observe communion together. Not going to show what the communion table is designed to show and that is we come together and we work out our differences. Why? Because Jesus was killed for us to be forgiven. What's the problem again? What's the issue again? But Peter is putting a barrier. He's withdrawing himself. He's separating himself from the other believers. Is that really a big deal? Isn't that just common? If you stop agreeing, you just put a barrier, you withdraw. I'm not going to be in that ministry. I'm not going to be in that ministry. Hey, where did they go? What happened to them? Oh, they're somewhere else. Paul withstood him to his face because he withdrew and separated himself. And that is a threat to the gospel. That has implications. Peter was acting divisively from the wrong motives. He succumbed to the wrong motive. He was acting out of fear, fearing the circumcision party. Let me ask you, how do you function when you're afraid of what people will think. We all deal with that, don't we? Oh, I wonder if they like that message. I wonder if that was, I wonder if they, I wonder if, acting out of fear, that leads to sin. He's also, he's also functioning in a way that is promoting racism. Um, Jesus died and shed his blood to make a people of every tribe, every nation, and Peter's contributing to division. Peter was hurting the church by setting a wrong example. As I said it last week, there are times, there's a healthy way that you go from one church to another church. Maybe this church isn't teaching the Bible. They just have one wing. We do a lot of stuff, but it's just missing the Bible. Okay, that's it's probably time to find a new church. Your job transfers you. You move. You retire. You head into a... You're going to... Find a Bible teaching, a Bible preaching church where you can walk in faith. It's not that we never change churches. I, I mean, I've been here 13 years. I'm not still in the first church I started in. But when it's done in a right way, you can have fellowship in those places. It doesn't obscure the gospel. Peter is setting a wrong example. He's hurting the church. And here comes Barnabas. Here comes the other Jews. They're like, well, if Peter's backing away from the table, um, you know, I, think, I just have to picture like some of them like, oh, yeah, we're all done with that. Yep, nope, we're not. Hang on one second, Peter. Yep, I'm about done. Uh, the wings, a little more crab legs. That's when you need the fanny pack, shoving in the food. Like, hang on. Yep, yep, I'm following you. Hang on, one more rib sandwich right down there. Okay, all right. We're, yeah, we're really sorry about this. Understand, that's what Peter's doing. Hey, Peter, come on over to eat. No, no, I can't, can't come today. Hmm. Isn't Peter over there? Why? He's over there. Yeah, he, he wouldn't come to my house. 
He used to come to my house. I had people, they want to hear about the gospel. And why isn't Peter coming anymore? Why has he set a, a barrier around this? Peter needed someone to love him enough to help him find the way back. And that's where Paul says, hey, if you're a Jew and you're living like a Gentile and not like a Jew, excuse me, Peter, but how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? That, you're a hypocrite. Okay, that's real nice. That's why I want to call it the ap apostolic brawl. How are you going to take it when somebody calls you a hypocrite in front of everybody watching? That's what Peter was doing. And Paul's saying, you're play, you're play acting. You're a hypocrite. Your behavior and your beliefs, they don't go together. So we need to go back to the gospel, Peter. We've got to go back to the basics. So let me ask you the question. It's pretty easy for us to identify other people when they're the offender. Can we identify our own offenses? How we might sway into legalistic thoughts, legalistic tendencies, have standards for other people that if they don't hold those, then we can even question their salvation. Who are the people that you might be excluding? Like, well, they don't really add anything to me. You walk through this and you walk into a lunchroom, walk into a place, an eating area. Who am I going to associate with? Who am I going to connect with? Are they going to help me or are they going to bother me? They're going to talk the whole time. I'm going to go somewhere else. This is getting at the heart. So when we consider the offender and we consider the offense... We have to come to the offering. Remember the offering. If Peter wouldn't have repented, Paul would have had no trouble putting a barrier and excluding him. But he points him to the offering. He points him to grace. Here's the truth, beloved. We cannot be justified by our nationality. That's what Paul is reminding Peter. Hey, we were Jews, Jews by birth. We're not Gentile sinners, and what good did that do us? We needed Jesus. We needed the gospel. We needed to turn from our sin and trust in Christ. So Peter, Paul, Barnabas, all the Jews, they were not saved by their nationality. They were not saved by keeping Jewish traditions. They were saved by grace, through faith in Jesus. Titus, the Greek, how was he saved? By grace, through faith in Jesus alone. How are you, if you are here and you are saved this morning, how are you clean before God? How are you justified by grace, through faith, in Christ alone? How can you be if you have never turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus? How can you be made right with God? By grace, through faith, in Christ alone. It's the gospel. We cannot be justified by doing religious activity the works of the law, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And in verse, seven, in verse 16, the word justified appears three times, once again in verse 17. And what does this word mean? We have to understand what is justification. The gracious act of God by which God declares a sinner righteous. 
solely through faith in Jesus Christ. And the way I've explained it, and I will keep explaining it, what does it mean to be justified? What does it mean to be declared righteous? It's a judicial term, whereas my debt is forgiven just as if I've never sinned. That's the negative. It's gone. Debt is gone. But then there's the positive, just as if I've always perfectly obeyed, because that's what it means to be in Christ, the beloved. Just as if I've never sinned, just as if I've always perfectly obeyed. Martin Luther, oh, he was so key on justification. He, this is the doctrine that was at the heart of the Reformation, the doctrine that's the heart of Christianity. He says this, and this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth, most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. There's Luther for you. Okay, so when we're studying through Galatians, if it feels a little bit like it's getting beaten into your head, like haven't we studied this before? Didn't he say this before? Isn't that message a little bit like the last message? It's because, beloved, we so quickly swing back to, I do these things, and I should earn God's favor, and, well, I do those things, and I bet God doesn't love me, and I guess he doesn't like me anymore, so I need to try harder, and we go through this back and forth and back and forth, rather than, I am called, I am healed, I am forgiven, I am in Christ, therefore, I can live out a life in the power of the Holy Spirit to do the pleasure of God. We can only be justified through faith in Jesus Christ. It's our only way to be justified. So let me ask you the question this morning. Have you believed in the gospel? Have you believed in Jesus in order to be justified? When Paul writes... To the Corinthians, he expresses this doctrine of being justified to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took our place, our substitute. In Hebrews chapter 10, it's all about Jesus being the offering that once for all, and he did away with all the sacrificial offerings when he offered his life. So we see, the, uh, we see the offender, and we see the offense, and we look to Christ, the offering, and my question is, what was the outcome of this? Okay, Paul doesn't give it to us in Galatians. I want you to go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter with me, to the right in your Bibles, or down further on your app, okay? 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter is at this point approaching his death. At this point, he's an older man. At this point, he is many years now in ministry, and Paul has been gone for a while, head chopped off. And when Peter writes, we get a little glimpse of what was the outcome of that meeting. What was the outcome of Paul withstanding Peter to his face? Let's listen to what Peter says. With all the backdrop that you've been given this morning from Mark chapter 7, from the book of Acts 10 and 11, from this meeting, now listen to what Peter says in the final words that he's writing in this letter. Therefore, verse 14, 
Beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at, hmm, peace. As an older man, don't you think, let me tell you about the time when I was causing, well, back to what I'm saying here. Thank God for peace. Verse 15, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. And let me tell you about that time when he came to Antioch and in wisdom, he withstood me to my face because I was doing wrong and I love him. And I'm so thankful for him. Oh, and by the way, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Oh, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Let me tell you about that group that came in when I was eating meals. Do you hear this connect together? It's the same person years later. This is a work of grace that has been done in him. And he says, as they do the other scriptures, verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Because let me tell you, I was losing my stability and Barnabas was following me and so were the other Jews. And then God sent Paul. But... Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. What a way to end. Thank you, Lord, for Paul, my brother. He loved me enough to say the hard things to me in such a kind and direct way. Exuding grace upon grace. Don't we need this? Don't we need grace? Oh, Father, will you give to us a knowledge of the right doctrine to hold to the gospel and to have a culture that is immersed in the gospel that you in your love and mercy came to us. You, Lord Jesus, lived the life that we can never live without sin, perfect, sinless Lamb of God. You laid down your life on the cross in my place. You were the offering in my place. And you were buried and you rose the third day. And everyone who trusts in you will be given life that never ends. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Thank you for your church. Give us, by your Spirit, a culture of grace. For Jesus' sake and for his glory, we pray. Amen.